What's up, everybody? Thank you for all for joining me on the latest CSG special. Before I get started, I would like to talk up to you about Blanchard Family Wines. Located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee, right in the middle of the Dairy Block in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. Um, great place to go have wine, great place to go have Pinot. It's just really, if you really want the wine tasting experience in, Den- in Denver without having to fly to California or drive 250 miles to Grand Junction, this is the place to go. If you like Pinot Noir, if you like, uh, you know, they have a nice Cabernet blend. Um, they, their wine is from their own vineyards in the Russian River Valley, in uh, basically near the Napa Valley in California. And it is uh, what I deemed as a great experience. And if you like the experience of tasting wine, enjoying wine, or just having a night out with friends, I really would recommend going to Blanchard Family Wines. Uh, I was very impressed with that time that I went, and I do not pump things on this podcast if I don't believe in them. Once again, Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee, in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, right in the middle of the dairy block, uh, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field. Uh, Go in, tell them Jeff Morton sent you. Hello, everyone. Well, this is part two of the CSG special on uh, Peter Bino and Bertram Lee's 30 years since they they were the first African-American uh, African Americans to own a professional sports team in the United States, and there's a couple things that I think we need to get, you know, kind of go over before we get started in the meat of this. Um, by all intents and purposes, both Peter Bino and Bertram Lee appeared to be successful businessmen, um, and as noted by Bertram Lee's multiple attempts to purchase an NBA team in the uh, late 80s, uh, specifically his almost attempt to buy the San Antonio Spurs. Um, there was obviously no reason on the surface to believe that there was anything awry. Uh, Peter Bino, of course, had was really one of the major people responsible for getting Comiskey Park, the new Comiskey Park built in uh, Chicago. Uh, and had been a Chicago mover and shaker for many years. Both of them were very prominent and well-respected African-American businessmen, and it was just um, what it seemed to be like too good to be true. Plus, you add in Arthur Ashe, and you add in Ron Brown, and and the partnership seemed like basically the dream for the NBA to have this really pioneering and groundbreaking. And it's a shame that in 2019... We don't have more African-American uh, or even just generally minority owners of professional sports teams in this country. Um, and this is something that still, to this day, needs to change. And 30 years ago, definitely, there was no one around, really, who had that opportunity. So after David Stern uh, announced at the Waldorf Astoria in uh New York that in this big lavish press conference um, that uh, the Peter Bino and Bertram Lee were going to be the first African American uh, owners of a professional sports team. Things went dark for two to three weeks, and it was becoming clear to those who were around the team at the time there was something seriously wrong. Um, multiple sources that I spoke to in writing my article 
several years ago on this ownership, uh, there seemed to be a disconnect with what they represented they could do and what they could deliver. And specifically, Bertram Lee. There was there was some missed calls for money, and uh, it got worse. Sidney Schlanker did not have cash in hand. There was nothing. There was nothing he got. There was an agreement in principle that was probably rush announced, and there wasn't any sort of actual sealing of the deal in terms of money. Uh, Schlanker gave the team of Bino Lee, Brown, and Ash lots of ample time to get themselves sorted out. Three weeks later, uh, basically in October, right before the Nuggets were scheduled to go out on a uh, uh, trip to, uh, I believe, Italy um, to start their preseason, uh, I believe it was like it was like a McDonald's Cup or something like that. There was a exhibition in Europe in 1989 that the Nuggets were on, uh, and before they were scheduled to leave, Pete Babcock, the Nuggets general manager, who was basically serving as the spokesman for Sidney Schlenker, uh came out and said the deal was off. That Bino and Lee could not come up with the money. And Sidney Schlenker had given them as much rope as he could possibly give them, and he called off the deal. This sent shockwaves through the league, and specifically in Denver. And you've got to look at it from the city of Denver's perspective. Um, there was this sale of the, the Nuggets going on while it was announced in New York. It was basically a situation that was uh, done separate and apart from the city of Denver. And this was bothersome. Uh, then suddenly it gets announced that the deal is off and they couldn't afford to buy the team. Um, Sidney Schlenker, now some have argued that this was just a power move by uh, Sidney Schlenker, but the next moves by David Stern prove that there was something serious, seriously rotten in the state of Denmark. Uh, from what I have been told in public reports and from people who were around at the time, Stern hit the roof. Um, it was uh, embarrassing for him. The entire episode was embarrassing for him personally. And he was not going to let the deal go down. Um, never mind the fact that if he had bothered to uh, test the means of either man, he probably could have known that they could not afford to own an NBA team. Specifically at the price Signe Schlenker said, which was $65 million. Um, and this was not going to do for David Stern. So he, in a last-minute desperate plea, went to his old friend, Robert Wessler Jr., who uh, basically had his hand in all media, um, was a mover and shaker at CBS. And the NBA had a partnership with CBS for a long time. Uh, going back to the 70s to broadcast their games. Um, and then also uh, he moved over to Turner and was big, good friends with Ted Turner. And, of course, the NBA's had a long partnership with Ted Turner on his networks, plus Ted Turner owned, the, for a time, the Atlanta Hawks. 
um, in 1970, I think it was 76, uh, Wessler uh, did appear in a movie called Black Sunday. He made a cameo in the movie. Uh, I believe that was the movie about the uh, uh, someone trying to bomb the Super Bowl. I think that was the uh, that was that movie. And he made an appearance in that movie. He was a movie producer, TV executive, and he was asked to run. And about in the mid-80s, he was asked to run a communications satellite corporation, which was ComSat, which was uh, basically a, a corporation that was trying to get in on satellite and direct media for hotels, basically is what their, their uh, stated purpose was. They wanted to be part of the hotel business, uh, but in a, which is lucrative even to this day. But they wanted to be part of the satellite and bring in media into hotel rooms, video into hotel rooms, which existed for a while. But obviously, you know, it's hard to hard to, to articulate to people the state of 1989 as opposed to 2019, where it's completely different. Everything's streaming and digital, digitized. Back then, satellite was actually really cutting edge and they really wanted to get this in on the ground floor and they were starting to make some headway. Well, he was the CEO of ComSat. David Stern went to ComSat and said, look, I need help. You're going to have to bail me out. Um, this deal was going south big time. Rather than finding others who could probably purchase the team instead, um, specifically Wessler, who uh, you know was an NBA fan, but ComSat, the corporation he headed, had no uh, desire to enter into a, owner, a ownership agreement for an NBA team. Uh, this is pre-real big explosion under Jordan. Um, as I explained in the last podcast, there was obviously the NBA was ascending, you know, under both you know David Stern's leadership and the Bird and Magic uh, explosion and the emphasis on stars. Where the NBA really took off was in the 90s under Jordan, and it had yet to hit that peak. Jordan was in the league, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't peak Jordan like it would be after 1991. Um, so the the NBA was desperate. They were desperate. They wanted to make this deal go through. And uh, after some extreme cajoling by Stern and arm twisting, uh, he managed to convince... Comset uh, Video Corporation to come in and purchase 65% of the team, propping up Bino and Lee as uh, managing owners for th- with 35%. Per- well, actually, Comset owned 67%, 67.5%, and Bino and Lee owned 325 uh, And this was the deal on paper. And the deal, which was eventually given to Sidney Schlenker, was for something like $54 million, And the rest of his purchase price was supposed to be made up in uh, stocks and, and things like that. It was, it was basically not nearly as good as the price that Sidney Schlenker wanted. Um, he, considering he bought the team for $28 million, but you know he was going to make a something like 200% profit. profit uh, and this was only, you know, 100, 150% profit. Um, he ended up 
being basically arm-twisted into taking the deal, even though he didn't want it. Um, and the the Bino Lee Comset uneasy partnership began in October of 1989. Uh, David Stern sent through Telex, which is something again I can't really explain to someone who is not in, who doesn't experience the world of 1989. Telex was kind of like. Um, fax machine before fax machine, basically, uh, to the NBA owners to get the thing approved. And it was Rush approved uh, on the word of David Stern. Uh, David Stern's role in this is cannot be discounted. Uh, the only reason, only reason, Bino and Lee were able to own a team was because David Stern made it so. Uh, under under no circumstances would they normally have been able to purchase an NBA team. They did not have the means. They did not have the money. They, uh, and it was clear at the time, and if anyone listened to Sidney Schlenker and Pete Babcock, uh, it was never going to be a time where they had the money. But history, then the eye towards history, needed to be heeded. And David Stern did not want to be personally embarrassed. So the Bino-Lee-Comsat partnership was commenced. They finally did a press conference in Denver uh, right after the season started. Uh, Bino and Bino famously, uh, excuse me, Peter, uh, Pete, Bertram Lee uh, famously said, we had credibility coming in the door which wasn't really true. Uh, there was some issues uh, with their credibility <laughs> because they didn't have the money to run a team. But at the time, everyone was willing to buy it, aside from maybe Sidney Schlenker and the people who ran Comsat. So, commencing through the era, they decided to keep Pete Babcock on, uh, Pete Babcock had been with the Nuggets since 1986 and uh, was their general manager since 1986. So they kept him on, kept Doug Moe on, and then basically the 1989-90 Nuggets were the sad denouement of a team that had just got too old. They won 44 games again that year, excuse me, 43 games that year, and were swept by the Spurs. In, in the first round, uh, it was a, it was kind of a sad end to the English era of the team. And uh, while the while this season was going on, there was attempts at harmony, but it was getting, it was getting to be difficult. The Nuggets attempted to have several different team presidents run the team. Uh, Dave Checkets. Uh, who later ran uh, the Knicks, uh, and who was, before that, he was with the Utah Jazz and was kind of run out of Utah, um, came in and tried to tried to bring order to the chaos that was Bino Lee and Comset, and specifically Robert Wessler Jr., and couldn't, and bowed out really quickly. In a desperate attempt, uh, the... Nuggets brought back Carl Shear, who had famously uh, been fired by uh, by Red McCombs, or let go, uh, depending on who you want to believe, 
1983, 82 or 83, uh, in, for Vince Barilla, who was the architect of the 1985 Western Conference Finals Nuggets. So they brought back Carl Shear, who really was part of their, what even then back was considered their glory days of the 70s. And uh, he came in to advise the team and basically be the team president. In the 1990 offseason, uh, Doug Moe ran the draft. He traded Fat Lever uh, to the Dallas Mavericks in exchange for the third pick, which, which was the Mavs pick, the third pick in the draft, which was actually a pick from that they acquired from someone else. Typical NBA uh, meanderings. And that pick turned out to be Chris Jackson. Um, Doug Moe largely was responsible for that draft. Uh, Pete Babcock um, had quit in February of 1990. And uh, it was Carl Shear and Doug Moe who ran the draft. Um, After the draft had commenced, they had hired um, Bernie Bickerstaff, who was the head coach of the Seattle Supersonics in several years when the Nuggets had played the Sonics. The Nuggets played the Sonics, um, I think, two or three times, three or four times, excuse me, in the 80s. Well, maybe not, two or three times. Um, and in, famously in 1987 in a knockdown dragout series that featured Xavier McDaniel uh, for the Sonics. Uh, so they were uh, kind of aware of Bernie and uh, Bickerstaff. Uh, was really, really pushed to become the uh, uh, general manager by the team of Bino and Lee, um, kind of overruling Carl Shear, who had his eye on uh, some other people. Uh, Bickerstaff came in and said that right off the bat he had no issue with Doug Moe. About, I believe, two to three weeks before... The season was supposed to begin. Doug Moe was fired. Uh, firing Doug Moe after you let him to conduct the draft was was kind of a Bush League move. Um, it's not clear who fired Doug Moe. Most people suspect that it was Robert Wessler who didn't like him. Uh, they That represented the power struggle between the titular managing partners of Bino and Bertram Lee and the guy who owned most of the team in Robert Wessler. Uh, there, there was a serious dispute as to who was responsible for firing Doug Moe. Most people now agree that Wessler, Wessler didn't, uh, didn't want Moe in there, didn't like him. Um, meanwhile, Doug Moe gets up there in a uh, Hawaiian shirt and uh, announces his own firing in one of the more bizarre instances in Denver sports history. Announces his own firing with a uh, and toasts it with some champagne with his wife, Big Jane. And uh, at ended the very successful, as far as wins go, uh, Doug Moe period of the Denver Nuggets. It was a weird way to handle his firing. Um, the fact that he had to announce his own firing was a little ridiculous. And Carl Shearer, you could see him up on the on the, the dais there. He looks 
extremely uncomfortable while Mo is toasting his own firing. Um, to this day, it remains one of the most singularly bizarre moments in Denver sports. Mo uh, was beloved. Now, you, you could have made a legit argument for the era needing to move. Uh, Mo had coped, but Mo had seen this Nuggets team, uh, and he had seen they were getting older. Uh, Alex English had been uh, not, ex- I mean, he was a free agent and the Nuggets didn't want anything to do with him uh, in a moment that was really, really poorly done. Another moment that was just awful for this team. And it caused, there was a lot of hard feelings that were caused from the 1990 offseason of this Denver Nuggets team. Add into the fact that they had to, they rush hired. Uh, a man who had just led the Loyola Marymount uh, team uh, into the, uh, I believe they won one or two games in the 1990 NCAA tournament, uh, which uh, eventually ended up in Denver, um, where UNLV beat uh, Duke uh, at at uh, McNichols Sports Arena. Uh, it, whatever wacky thing you could think of, um, the most wacky I've ever seen has been <laughs> Paul Westhead and his offense or his version of what basketball should be which was score as much as possible and don't play defense It did literally that was his philosophy um, and there was that, that Nuggets team that he ended up coaching in 1991 was I don't know how they won 20 games. And I think it was largely because Michael Adams, uh, who was still on the team, uh, got hot during a stretch in the middle of the season and led the team to some actually some improbable victories. Uh, the Nuggets' style was wacky, and it was embarrassing. It, it actually featured at one point a uh, time where they gave up 106 points at halftime to the Phoenix Suns uh, in one of the most singularly embarrassing points of Denver Nuggets basketball. And the Nuggets became a, a joke. Um, they were, this, the hiring of Westhead was another one that many people are not sure who was responsible. By this point, Carl Shearer had left uh, or was on his way out. Uh, Bernie Bickerstaff has ba- had basically lar- largely taken over the team president um, uh, role from Shear, and the Nuggets were in a weird limbo. And ownership, from what everyone has told me at the time, the problems between uh, Wessler, Robert Wessler, and specifically Peter Bino began during the Westhead years. And uh, the two battled constantly for control of the team. Uh, anyone who you speak to about Robert Wessler, who has passed, passed away about 15 years ago, um, will tell you that he was a, a titanic jerk. And uh, basically, you know, was not, he was not someone that you wanted to have associated with your basketball team. At the same time, neither was Peter Bino, who uh, made a ton of mistakes, 
um, didn't know how to run a basketball team, and it was being clear, it was really clear that neither man knew what the hell they were doing. Meanwhile, Bertram Lee kept missing what's called capital calls, which is essentially you got to pay your payment. Um, they set up a payment structure to get, uh, you know, you, you own a team, but you owe on, you basically have to keep paying. And that's the way they had set it up. And Bertram Lee kept missing what is known as capital calls. And it was getting to the point where it was critical. Um, add on top of that, that Bino, no one was entirely sure what Bino, how Bino was getting his money or what, how it was going down because he started missing himself some capital calls. And the situation wasn't tenable. It was not tenable at all, and David Stern was getting wind of it in the NBA offices. Truly, really, truly, the Bino Lee Association was only three years. And it culminated, well, not, not culminated, but it, the sad end to the history began when the people of Denver found out that Bertram Lee was evicted from his Denver apartment. And that you said it's something that you never expect a team owner to be. He was evicted from his Denver apartment. Uh, and it was a very public thing. And people really at that point began to wonder what the hell was going on with the Nuggets. They were they won twenty games, were one of the worst teams in the basket in the basketball universe. And their owner, one of their owners, was just evicted from his apartment. Where were the Nuggets to go from here, and how would they be saved? And I will cover that one, that part next on the next episode of the Bino Lee disaster that befell the Nuggets in 19, 1989. Uh, what, became, what should have been history became just almost ruined the team. We'll talk about that more when I talk to you guys next episode. Goodbye.